This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Jawley at the Conservative Party Conference in Manchester. And uh, regular listeners will note that my voice is slightly better, if not entirely back to uh, normal. Right, coming up on the podcast today, um, there's been lots and lots of talk about wages and the economy. And was this all part of the Brexit plan that we go without pigs in blankets for a while and then everyone gets paid more? So, uh, coming up, wage against the machine... Uh, we assemble a panel of economic experts to explain what all of this stuff means. And Stephen Swinford, who interviewed the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, for the Times at the weekend, he'll be here with uh, trying to unpick some of that interview too. Uh, also, coming up in just a moment, we've got our columnist panel. But first, I just want to bring you uh, the latest news from the Times Radio Egg and Spoon race. Uh, we did it last week at the Labour Party Conference. Over three races, the, the uh, journalists won two, the politicians won one. Uh, so we re-ran it at the Conservative Party Conference today. And, uh, well, basically what happened was we ended up gate-crashing the back of BBC Politics Live. I've tweeted the video of it, if you want to have a look, at Matt Jolly. Uh, but yeah, let's take a listen to what happened for round one of the Conservative Party uh, leg of the Times Radio Egg and Spoon race. Today we've got an all-Scottish contest, which makes it even more exciting. Uh, flying the flag for the journalist Kieran Andrews, Scottish political editor of the Times. Good afternoon, Matt. How are you? I'm very well, thank you very much. Uh, are you um, content that this is your main contribution to the Times Radio's conference coverage? I'm content this is my main contribution to the Times. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, carrying the spoon and flying the flag for the politicians is Conservative MP Andrew Bowie. How are you? Very well, Matt. How are you? I'm very good. good. I'm very good. Um, are you, what, have you got any... Um, uh, what's your technique for the egg and spoon race? <laughs> My technique is not to drop it. I think if I get round this, this course without dropping this egg, it will be a great success. Now, the key thing is, uh, these eggs have been boiled in a microwave in a holiday inn. I didn't even know you could do that. Well, th- as a result, we're not that confident that they've been very well hard-boiled. Ah. So if you do drop them... Uh, yeah, and I will, get a, I will leave you to explain to the stewards why I've made quite such a mess. So, uh, the, way that, the way that we're doing the course, what is good about the course already is it's quite busy with people. Uh, sort of added, so because we're right in the very centre of the front of the conference centre. So the course is, uh, you've got to go past the NFU, past Thakeman, 
uh, whatever that is. Uh, then you're going to turn left at Global. No idea what that is. It's some sort of... It's some sort of... Yeah. Some sort of I don't know what they're doing. Uh, uh, left at Global, and then back down the other side, and then I'll meet you on the other side, and it's the first person to get to me is the winner. Is that... Ha- happy with that? Perfect. I can't believe you didn't get the NFU to check the quality of the eggs. Are these British right eggs? Beside, right beside each other. Are these British eggs? I think so. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, yes, they are. British, British and free range. So we are thinking about welfare status. Right then, well, it's, there's only one thing for it, and that's wait, 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 wait for it. I will give you the full ready, study, go. Here we go then. Round one of the Times Radio Egg and Spoon Race. Uh, go back, Andrew, that's cheating. Times Radio Egg and Spoon Race at the Conservative Party Conference. On your marks, get set, go! And off they go. And, wow, Andrew is nippy. I mean, he is nippy. He's, ga- he's going down. Then he needs to go left there. Round the back of Staker. There we are. And then they're coming up the back straight. There are quite a lot of people. Andrew is ahead. Kieran needs to pull it out of the back here if he's going to... Gonna, uh, if he's going to chat. Oh, it's very close. It is very close. Oh, it's a photo finish. It is a photo finish. Eggs have been dropped. Eggs have been dropped all over the back of the Daily Politics. You put BBC Two on. You will. <laughs> all over the back of the Daily Politics. There we are. Uh, we could definitely get some footage of that, I'm sure. Uh, they didn't look very happy, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, Conservative MP uh, Jake Berry being interviewed by Joe Coburn on the BBC. I can't remember. Who, who did I say won that? I think Andrew won in fairness. I think he just beat me. Well, it was very yeah. close. It was very close. But we'll, we'll, we'll award you the win, Andrew. That's very good of you. I'm, you know, I'm quite... But this is, the, the, this is the, the biggest achievement I've ever, I've ever had in do, my political Do you know what I like? You both so seem a bit out of breath. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it was quite competitive at the end, I think. <laughs> it was, yeah. It just came up at the outside. Yeah. But, yeah. The, the good news is the eggs are hard-boiled enough. They are. Although the there is quite a lot of egg on the, the BBC on the set. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, that was an unfortunate. Well, well done, everybody. Um, all you know, all all ended very well. What is this going to be the highlight of your conference, Andrew? I mean, it is already the highlight of my conference. It's, it's what I was looking forward to uh, when I got to Manchester. I mean, the, the 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 thought of taking part in this race was just you know it was driving me. Uh, oh, actually, as as part of your win, I think we have we got any of the egg cups left? Oh yeah, here we are. Look, you don't get a trophy, but we can present you with a Times Radio egg cup. Oh. There you are, you see. Clear this, haven't I? I don't think that's going to breach whatever the limit is. That's the financial cost of that. I think you'll be okay. Well, congratulations. Well done, gents. Nice to see you both. We'll catch up with you again. Well, there we are. That was the uh, Times Radio uh, Egg and Spoon race. Uh, Huge thanks to uh, Andrew Bowie and Kieran Andrews for taking part, and huge apologies to BBC Politics Live for gate crashing behind them as the Conservative MP Jake Berry was trying to speak. Very seriously about levelling up to Joe Coburn. Uh, right, uh, now let's turn our attention to our columnist panel. Joining me today live in Manchester was John Stevens from the Daily Mail and Katie Balls from The Spectator. Now, how is conference? Are you having fun? How does it compare to last week, Katie? Um, I mean, I think it's, it's got an atmosphere where things might actually happen, where the problem with the Labour conference is it just felt very muted, partly because... Uh, MPs and activists are quite despondent and also because uh, they're not close to power. Where here, uh, I think even though, you know, we don't have the drama of previous Tory conferences in the sense that the leader doesn't look at risk, there's not a, you know, a Brexit crisis about to tear the party in two, there is a sense that obviously decisions are being taken and things can move quite quickly. And when an announcement's made, John, in the funny little hall that they've built uh, a few feet away from us, um, it at least is going to happen. When they announce that, you know, here's a scheme or some money, whatever it might be, this, the stakes feel, feel a bit higher. 
It's a lot more newsy, but it does have a bit of a strange vibe. You know, you talk about that auditorium there. I mean, it, it is completely tiny. You think about years ago, when, you know, Theresa May, when she had that speech, when she got handed the P45, it was like a massive auditorium. And here they've kind of just got a little bit of curtain around a few seats. I mean, there's hardly any other seats, hardly any other seats in there, and there are hardly any people in there either. And it is a bit of a kind of damp squib. But obviously, everything the ministers say means something. They can enact policy instantly. Why do you think that is? Because I thought, I mean, they've built this smaller thing, presumably in the hope it would live, it would be full, and yet it just isn't. What's going on, Katie? Is it because everyone is zooming in from home because it's a sort of hybrid conference? Yeah, I think. I've spoken to plenty of Tory MPs who, not just because of fuel shortages, have decided to log <laughs> in from home. Um, you know, saying it's you know it's, it's a midterm conference. We don't really need to be there, and if we're going to find out what levelling up means, we can actually just learn that from our laptop if they if they do say anything. I think you can see with the smaller hall how they're trying to create that atmosphere, and it does get filled fairly quickly, but it's not very high bar. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it is fairly muted, but at the same time, isn't there is still a bit of buzz, and I think that despite all the problems in terms of what the country is facing with the various shortages, um, there is a there is a sense of celebration. This is the first time uh, you know activists have met since Boris Johnson won the majority of eighty. So I think it is fairly uh, buoyant for what you're looking at, at when you leave the conference hall. John, it is sort of, sort of amazing that it's a backdrop to a party conference. You've got people who can't fill up their cars with petrol, uh, food shortages uh, on the way, uh, energy prices are going. There were so many things that normally would be government in crisis, and yet Boris Johnson is still sort of king of all he surveys. Yeah, and I mean, at the moment, he's trying to brush off the criticism. Obviously, they're trying to create this dividing line between them and Labour, saying Keir Starmer would let in loads of immigrants. Instead, we're going to see people's wages rise by keeping migration down. And I think that kind of works for now. I think if you're months into this and you've still got shortages, I don't think people will say, oh, well, at least we've not got loads of immigrants coming in. You know, I think people will think, what, they, what the hell is going on? they chuck another chair leg on the fire. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I think Christmas will be important. You know, obviously last year was totally miserable for a lot of people. If they completely muck it up again, all the problems are there. I think people will blame the government. It's interesting, Katie. We had, I spoke to Liam Fox earlier, and he was talking about, as a prominent Brexiteer, former cabinet minister, he's, he was sort of saying the whole point of Brexit was that we take control of immigration... And instead of every person who comes here then having the right to stay and claim benefits and all that, we have control to say, OK, we need some butchers. Let's bring in some butchers and they can stay here on short-term visas to plug that gap. And he seemed a bit... I couldn't really get out of him why he thought the government was being so stubborn on this. That actually, uh, if there is a shortage of butchers right now, that's not going to be solved by putting up wages and people training for something that's going to take 18 months. Um, there's a weird stubbornness of, of the Prime Minister and the Home Secretary. Yeah, I think you've got a few things going on. One is that the government is talking very tough, but they are issuing visas. Yeah. It's not the same level as Keir Starmer. So Keir Starmer has given them a clear dividing line. Um, but, you know, it's saying, oh, we can't have this. Wages are going to go up. By the way, we've issued 5,000 short-term visas, but, you know, that's not the main story here. So there's a little bit of that behind the scenes. I also think it is interesting how they seem to think they can make this into a real win for them politically. Because as John is touching on, I, I think it's high stakes 
going for this, uh, you know, this is turbulence, but it's going to be better for everyone in the medium long term because short term it's going to be very turbulent. And then also I think there's a question as to higher wages in it themselves. Who pays for it? Is it eventually on the consumer? We've already got warnings about inflation. I'm not sure that people are going to necessarily feel richer on mass um, because lorry drivers' wages go up now. I think you can argue it's a good thing that they're going up, but I don't think it's the simple solution that some of the interviews of ministers seem to be making out. Because, and this is the point that Liam Fox is making, it, the slight sense of being having to give an economics lesson to some of his colleagues, that, uh, John, that unless you're improving productivity, just paying people more for doing exactly the same jobs just creates inflation and everyone ends up worse off. Yeah, exactly. So I think you'll just get people blaming the government for the price rises. And you saw yesterday Liz Truss saying, you know, if there were shortage of goods in the shops, that's not Boris Johnson's fault. We don't want a command and control economy. I just don't think people will feel like that if they go to the shops and they think that the government hasn't properly operated the immigration system to make sure we've got the people we need. And I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? If, sh if there are shortages at Christmas, people are not going to think... Well, at least the people—at least the people who delivered the th few things we have got—were being paid more <laughs> for doing it. That's not that you know. That's not uh, going to, and it also doesn't feel very sunlit uplands. You know, the the, the Brexit dividend is was not. You know, you can't get pigs in blankets. That was not part of the part of the promise. Um, what about Rishi? Let's look at a bit ahead. Rishi Sunak's um, speech at what ten to twelve. Uh, is it a bit, a bit low key? Wishy Sunak, what's the? Cause, I mean, the big announcement he's made: half, uh, uh, five hundred million pounds to renew uh, to renew job support programmes. So even on their own uh, admission, it's just a sort of extension of something they was already doing. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone wants to talk about tax um, and the direction the Tory party is going in, but I don't think Rishi Sunak's really going to go there. I think he wants to talk about jobs, the recovery, and uh, his focus on youth and opportunities. Um, I think probably the more interesting Rishi Sunak event is the fringe event he's doing, where he's being interviewed by the IEA among one of two think tanks, the Institute of Economic Affairs. And I think uh, Mark Littleman, if I'm correct, called it a moral outrage and the national insurance rise. Um, so I think that's where you could actually see an interesting interesting conversation where Rishi Sunak is pressed by people who should normally be on his side, who are quite horrified with the direction the Conservative Party is taking on the economy. Um, whereas I'm, I could be proven wrong, but I think the speech is not uh, being seen as this big moment for Rishi Sunak, at least by his team. It's interesting that, though, because it's his first in-person party conference. You know, when, when George Osborne did these party conference speeches, it was a sort of three-day event. It would be briefed into the Sunday papers. There'd be more into the Monday papers. There'd be another big rabbit out of the hat in the speech after. And you would sort of dominate the news quite a period. I think he's slightly hemmed in. You've got a spending review and a budget coming up in a few weeks' time. Obviously, he's going to save some things for that. I think one of the interesting subplots of conference is the reaction to Tory ministers. Obviously, we had Liz Truss yesterday always tops these polls of favourability amongst Tory members. But actually, after her speech, it was quite flat. She got a bit of applause. It wasn't a massive applause. There was no standing ovation. So I think it'd be interesting to compare what is the reaction Rishi Sunak gets later on today and will show us ooh, who are the membership leaning towards in case we do ever end up with a Tory leadership contest. Yeah, there was, the, the speech was no uh, cheese imports, was it? It didn't reach those heights. Katie, who is it? Because um, I was discussing this earlier on. Um, who is the sort of rock star of this conference? In previous years, it's been... Jacob Rees-Mogg, every single fringe had cues out the door. Uh, Liz Truss as well in the past when she was a sort of more junior minister, but, you know, had a habit of saying it. Is there a, is there a new rock star emerging? 
It's a boring answer, but I think if anything, it's Boris Johnson. You have a situation where the Prime Minister looks as though he's in a very powerful position. No one really thinks there's going to be a leadership contest anytime soon. Um, so you don't really have uh, that buzz around Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss in the way you might if it looked as though Boris Johnson was thinking about stepping down, didn't want to be a two-term Prime Minister. Um, I think some of the Red Wall MPs, I've, I've seen Deanna Davison, uh, the Bishop Auckland MP, have young activists gather around her. Um, I think she's giving out badges, so that may have helped. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so I think there's a little bit of interest in terms of those new MPs, because this is the first time that you've had an in-person meet since they entered Parliament. Um, but otherwise, I think the, the main show in town is the Prime Minister. And so far, at least, John, those new MPs, the 29s, they've been reasonably well behaved. They're, I suppose that's the, if Deanna Davidson starts appearing at loads of fringes, and saying this is not the Tory government I signed up for, then that, that would create a bit of buzz. But if essentially he's giving out badges and being relatively loyal, then that's much less interesting. Yeah, and I think the coronavirus pandemic has obviously had an impact on how that bunch of MPs has behaved. They haven't had the same time to get to know lots of journalists. They haven't spent so much time in Westminster building alliances and plotting and working out which faction they stand in. So I think maybe that's the sort of thing you might start to see developing in the next couple of years. I suppose, that, yeah, but you're right. It is extraordinary that Boris Johnson can basically do what he likes. The, actually, the IEA can get cross about putting up taxes, but where, where else are they going to go? Uh, you know, you've got a situation where the Labour Party's come out against a tax rise of the NHS. And Boris Johnson can, you know, just sort of brush that off. Yeah, I think it is really interesting in the sense that you walk around and Look, everyone is very happy the Tories are in power, that, you know, the party lays support. Um, but people are not happy with the direction of the government. Everyone is complaining about the tax rises. I think the fact, you know, the way the tax burden is going is not something which um, I've met anyone talk with pride about. Um, yet, as you say, it's not as though we're about to see a protest en masse. And in terms of MPs and ministers, they all think their career would be ruined if they did that. And it's not worth sticking their head above the power of it because... Boris Johnson has enough power that he can do what he wants. That's why he managed to get this tax rise through so last minute. Um, so it's strange because even publicly you're hearing discontent, but yet Boris Johnson is in a very strong position. So, Yeah, it's interesting. it is interesting. And I suppose that's the thing, isn't it, John? That, um, while there's sort of low-level grumbling, there's, no, uh, there's nowhere for it to go. The, the, and it, while, the, you know, while the talk... It, it, none of it makes sense. People keep messaging in and saying... You know, he tells lies. The country's in a mess. I can't flip my car away. They've got four, five, six, seven, eight-point leads in the polls. His personal races are still very strong. Yeah, they've done terrifically well at being able to brush these issues off. And I don't think MPs are getting massively hammered in their post bags with lots of complaints. I think so far they've managed to dodge a lot of the responsibility these issues and stuff like the universal credit rise, Rishi Sunak's done quite a good job of saying, well, if you want that money to stay, how are we going to pay for it? And I think a lot of MPs don't want to see tax rises. Yeah, so instead MPs are just getting massively hammered at fringe events instead. <laughs> Be best party you've been to so far, Katie? I went to the Conservative Home Party last night. I think that was my first party, so it's the only one to pick it, from. It's the only one you've been to, and yeah, that was good. That was good. Best, yep. bit, best bit of gossip. I mean, Liz Truss was there, and actually, I have to say, she was getting a lot of attention at the party, so even though we didn't see it in the hall, she was very much, you know, had you couldn't really get a conversation because every two minutes would someone come up, would come up and congratulate her and ask for a selfie, so there is, there is some trust mania if you at least uh, go to a well-stocked bar. John? My best party was probably having dinner with you last <laughs> night, but that's not really an official, official fringe event. I wasn't invited. It's no. a lot... 
So, so, oh, just to be clear, so much food was ordered, they had to move us to a bigger table in the Chinese restaurant. What restaurant did you go we to? We went to a Chinese restaurant. And it was delicious. To be honest, I'm finding it a lot easier than last week. Labour conference, I hadn't been to any of those parties in so long. I'd forgotten kind of the social basics. When you get stuck with a boring person, how do you politely <laughs> remove yourself? Last week there was a party and it just, just got stuck with this guy. I couldn't find any way of ending it, wrapping up the conversation. In the end, I just had to pretend I had a dinner and just said, I'm really sorry, I sorry, have to sorry, leave. Sorry, Keir, I've got to go. Party. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> John Stevens and Katie Ballsdown. Right, coming up next, it's Wage Against the Machine. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This is the Red Box Podcast, Matt Jolly in Manchester for the Conservative Party Conference. Now, wage against the machine. You don't get that on the other side, do you? Right, so we're going to take a look at wages and the Prime Minister's boast that boosting wages for those in work is all part of the Brexit plan. In a moment, we'll speak to some economic experts as to whether or not the figures all add up. But first, Times political editor Stephen Swinford uh, has joined me. Morning, Steve. Good morning. Now, you interviewed the Prime Minister for uh, the Times at the weekend. Yeah. What sort of mood was he in? Uh, he was in, it wasn't 100% full-on Boris. I, I think he is quite tired, um, but I think he'll get more enthused at conference because he's surrounded by Tory activists, MPs, um, and people who think he's doing a great job. So that, that will liven him up, I imagine. OK, but let's take uh, a listen to particularly what he said on the, uh, on the question of, was well, a sort of definition of levelling up you got out of him, uh, saying it was all about wage growth. We want to make sure that uh, they see changes in their, uh, in their wages, uh, and, and that is the, the, the first and most important thing uh, that I think people voted for when they, when they voted for this government. They voted for change in, uh, in, in 2016. They voted for us again in, uh, in 2019 uh, because they saw exactly what... And I remember uh, during, the, during the referendum campaign uh, the moments when people really started listening uh, when I, I addressed this issue of the growing disparity between uh, executive pay and the pay of, uh, of, of everybody else and, and, the, and, the, and the growing gap. And I pointed out some of the figures. You remember that? Yeah. And um, that argument had a, a, a really had a, a big impact. And I'm very proud to say that you're, you're now starting to see uh, that position changing and you're starting to see 
people uh, getting paid better uh, across the country. And, if, and that is uh, what I mean by levelling up. I mean, it's quite a long answer, but it, it, unpacking it, Steve, is he right to say that this is what Brexit was all about, that we, we have a brief period where nobody can get any petrol and that will drive up wages and then everyone will be happy? I think it's what he would like to think that Brexit was about, but talking to people around him during that Brexit EU referendum period, they say the thing that it was actually about, a lot of it, was about migration and controlling migration. Now, Boris Johnson famously actually has quite a... He's got a very open view on migration, and so that's not how he likes to see it defined. He likes to see it through the prism of higher wages and people wanting to make a change. But the thing that was stark in that interview, Matt, is... Wages was the answer to just about over half of the questions. What is levelling up? What is your post-Brexit vision for Britain? And it was just wages, 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 higher wages for all. And that is where I think that is where he has found his definition on levelling up. And that's what we're going to be hearing a lot about at conference. But of course, um, the point that lots of people are making, I was speaking to Liam Fox earlier on, and he, he was making the point, if you just pay the same people more money for doing the same jobs, it doesn't ultimately change the, the economy. Uh, it, it just leads to inflation. Let's take a listen to uh, uh, Boris Johnson speaking to you, Steve, dismissing any concerns about rising inflation. Look, we've got the, we've got the fastest growing economy in the, in the G7, and uh, we're, seeing, um, we're seeing wages rise, which is very good. Uh, but I think that, that once the global economy uh, really gets moving and opens up again, uh, I think that uh, uh, things will be fine. I think, you'll think, you know, I think things will, will start to adjust. Things will be fine. When I read your piece at the weekend, Steve, I did think that's the most Boris Johnson-like outlook to any problem. In the end, things will be fine. So he thinks things will be fine. The man next door, Rishi Sunak, doesn't necessarily think things will be fine. He says that inflation is the thing that keeps him up at night. That's what he's worried about. Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, doesn't necessarily think things will be fine. He gave an after-dinner speech where he started talking about plagues of locusts descending on us the other, <laughs> the other week. So th- there are concerns about inflation and what will happen with that and whether that can actually be controlled. And I, I think that Boris Johnson has a very boosterish view of the economy and a, a kind of boosterish vision of where things are going but you know there are real pitfalls in this approach and whether high wages will happen and whether if they do happen they will actually be the solution to all of the troubles that are ailing him at the moment just take us inside that relationship a bit between prime minister and chancellor how is it I think there are tensions. I think there are consistently tensions. There are institutional tensions anyway. But look, you know, Rishi Sunak has just done a massive tax rise in national insurance that he did not want to do. He did not want to be putting a tax on working people. I think he was arguing behind the scenes that social care, which is what that money has been part going to pay for, shouldn't be the priority of government at the moment. We're after a pandemic. But Boris Johnson wanted to reform social care, and that's why he's raising taxes. We'll be interested to see if we get any more uh, clue from Rishi Sunak's uh, speech later on. Steve Smith, I know you're very busy. Uh, please go to the Times. Thanks very much for joining us. And talking soon, some of uh, your interview with Boris Johnson, you can obviously read that online right now uh, at thetimes.co.uk. It was in the, uh, in the Times over the weekend. Right, let's uh, have a proper dig around in uh, this question of wages and uh, is the Prime Minister actually right? We'll do that with a panel of experts next here on Times Radio. Matt Chorley, mid-morning on Times Radio. Yeah, good morning, it's Matt Jolly, live from the Conservative Party conference in Manchester. Now, one of the big themes in Boris Johnson over the weekend has been uh, his uh, conviction that wages going up is a good thing and that is going to... Everything will be fine, as he told uh, Stephen Swinford, the political editor of the Times. Is he right, though? Well, let's, we've assembled a stellar panel of economic experts to uh, pick over it all for us. Uh, on the line, we've got Torsten Bell, the chief executive of the Resolution Foundation. Morning, Torsten. Morning. 
And uh, here with me on the Times Radio stand at the Conservative Party Conference, Polly McKenzie, Chief Executive of the Demos Think Tank. Morning, Polly. Morning. And Matt Lesh from the Adam Smith Institute. Morning, Matt. Good morning. Torsten, uh, first of all, let's, let's deal with some facts, because uh, they're always good uh, in this debate. When the Prime Minister says that wages are rising uh, in real terms, as in wages are going up uh, uh, more than inflation, is he right? Uh, so the big picture is that the wage rises being experienced by most people aren't above the rate of inflation at the moment, and that's because of two reasons. One, it's because some of the measures of average wages are hiding some big changes in our economy that make it look like you're seeing a bigger rise than is actually being felt on the ground. That's for two reasons. One, because lower wage sectors have been particularly hard hit by this crisis. And if you take the shortest person out of the room, the average height of the room goes up, even though no one's actual height has increased. So that's a kind of compositional effect. And the second one is because this time last year, when we were in the depths of the crisis, uh, wages were particularly low. And so because we're a year on from that, you're seeing big it looks like you've got fast wage growth going on. But if we look over the slightly longer time period from the beginning of the crisis, what you see is that wage growth isn't as strong as it appears in those headline figures. So first of all, the wage growth figures that you sometimes get trumpeted are overstating how strong wage growth is. And then secondly, as everybody knows from their day-to-day lives these days, the prices are going up and they're increasing quite fast. That's particularly true on the likes of energy and food. But there is a general trend towards higher levels of inflation. And is it also partly, is it all being skewed by what happened 12 months ago, that actually if people took a pay cut or had reduced hours as a result of the pandemic, them just going back to where they were before looks like an increase in in pay? Yeah, that is a big part of what is going on. I mean, it's just different for different people. Yeah. um, But but yeah, there's a lot of that going on. And that's why we should be a bit careful right now about taking kind of headline averages as a good indicator of what's happening to actual people. And when the Prime Minister was challenged on this uh, over the weekend, he sort of said, well, actually, the people at the bottom, the lowest paid, are experiencing uh, real terms uh, growth in wages. Is that right? So what is generally true is, is that for the last two decades in Britain, lower hourly earners have been seeing the fastest paid growth. And that basically comes down to the existence and the increasing of the minimum wage over those two decades. So, yes, that has broadly been true. And that minimum wage rises have continued under this government even during the pandemic so on an hourly basis that is true but again there's two big caveats one is that actually how much you get to live on is determined by how many hours work you do not just how much you get paid for each hour and actually we've seen some quite worrying trends over time about lower earners finding it harder to get the hours they need so weekly earnings haven't been rising anywhere near as fast at the bottom as hourly earnings have. And the second thing, which again shouldn't be a surprise to anybody listening, is that low earners were obviously by far the hardest hit by this crisis. Low earners and the young are where the pain has been most felt, and that's because the sectors of the economy that we shut down, hospitality, leisure and the rest, had those workers in them. And so partly going back to what you said before, yes, low earners are seeing slightly faster pay growth right now, although not the lowest, but the... um, but that is in part reflecting that they had an absolutely catastrophic crisis. OK, so let's bring in Polly McKenzie. Um, you were nodding through, through uh, much of that. Is this basically a problem with economic and political conversation generally that we end up having an argument about two sets of figures, inflation and wage growth, both of which are essentially meaningless to normal people's life lived experience? Yeah, I mean, Resolution Foundation, which Torsten runs, produces fantastic charts, which most people don't see or understand. And it's interesting that Torsten talked about that 
phenomenon that you take the shortest person out of the room, the average height increases. And so when you lose the lowest wage people from the economy, the average rises. That's the reverse of that was also true during this long period of wage stagnation in that part of that stagnation was because lots of new jobs were being created at the bottom of the economy. And so you're putting more short people in the room, essentially. And, and so we end up with confused stories, like on the one hand, people saying that, that that's wage stagnation, even though that might not be most people's experience during that stagnation period they might actually be experiencing pay rises. And I suppose that's the thing, is it? Because normal people, I mean, particularly when people talk about the last 10 years, very few people w- will be in exactly the same job as they were 10 years ago on exactly the same amount of money. Because you move around, you might get promoted, you move to a different department, a different company, all that sort of thing. So is it, that is the disconnect between a normal person's experience in the jobs market and the overall economic picture. Yeah, I mean, of course, it's phenomenally important, especially at government level, to be thinking about that macro picture. But when it comes to the politics, I think people's personal experiences are, are absolutely vital to how they feel about whether things are going well or not. And that's why you get sort of cost of living crisis around things like council tax, which is like a visible tax that you have to pay much more than income tax, which disappears in your pay bill. And that's why things like the price you're paying at the checkout, the price you're paying at the fuel pump, if you can get any fuel, the energy bills, especially when you know people are going into winter, are, they, they have a visceral impact on people and may create kind of political uh, impact that because if you only look at that statistical picture and, and reassure yourself, as the Prime Minister is doing, that, oh, wages are going up, so everything's going to be great, you may kind of find yourself knocked for six. And that, it's interesting to me, you know, Conservatives have a, adapted to a new coalition of voters and they, they don't have that kind of habit of mind of listening to cost of living concerns from the bottom kind of 20, 30% of people because those weren't their voters. If those are voters that they want to keep, uh, then they're actually going to f- need to find ways to, to worry about this stuff, I think, a bit more. And from a market perspective, I can see why Liz Truss has said, you know, she doesn't think that the prices in the shops or what's in the shops is the Prime Minister's responsibility. But if the voters disagree with that, it may get them into trouble later on. I mean, particularly, actually, the impact of the last 18 months is that we've got used to the idea that everything is the Prime Minister's <laughs> responsibility. You know, whether or not you can leave your house, how many people you can see, all of, you know, what you have to wear on your face when you go on a track. All of that has become the Prime Minister's responsibility. So it's a, I suppose it's an adjustment to that. Um, Matt from the Adam Smith Institute, obviously it's a sort of mm. Thatcherite think tank, <laughs> uh, on the right economically. What's your, what's your assessment then, basically, of what uh, Polly was just saying? That where is the government economically, f- from your perspective? Look, I, I've got a lot of concerns about where the government is economically. Um, but also, I, I suppose, in some respects, factually, I think they're talking themselves into a bit of a trap when it comes to this, this wages inflation um, risk because it's nice to talk about rising wages, but if for a lot of people that's actually in practice just inflationary because we're not seeing productivity improvements because it's caused by shortages, it's not caused by productivity increases, um, in the end people's quality of life will go down. They'll, they'll see that every day as they're trying to buy things. There's just a little bit um, less left at the end of the month. And, and I, I, I don't know, some of the, the economic rhetoric seems quite ridiculous. As a Tory MP said yesterday that he thought it would be in the long-term interest of, of, the, uh, of Britain if supermarket shortages were to continue because people would be able to go down to local shop um, uh, from a village shop or, or from a local farmer. Now, I think for a lot of people, that's not particularly realistic. Supermarkets are quite convenient, they're quite cheap. Also, where do they think the local shop's going to get this thing from? Well, well exactly. If, if the supermarket can't get potatoes, 
Why will the local shop be able to go get them? Go dig them up at the farm. Uh, on your own, you go and collect your own. I don't live own. close to a farm myself. <laughs> While you're there, you can slaughter your own pig. It's a very 12th century, isn't it? We, we, could, we could all go back to our farms um, and just produce just enough for ourselves, starve some seasons, starve, don't stop. Anyway, I, and this is the classic of it, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's this whole thing about supply chains that I don't think is particularly well understood, which is also that um, having global diverse supply chains is actually increases our food security if the UK couldn't buy food from across the world. There's an article in the, in the Times the other week about... Uh, I think it was say, suggesting that well, we might have to get some turkeys from, Pol from Poland. Great, if, if we can't produce it locally, um, let's get some turkeys from Poland. Let, let's, let's make sure that we, we have food from all over the world, as Britain has successfully done for a few hundred years. Like, we don't need to produce everything locally down the street. We just want quality food, well-produced, you know, high-quality standards, of course, um, from all over the world. And I think that's, that's a good thing. And if we can, obviously, there's logistics issues locally, internationally, et cetera, that are they're undermining that. But the, the, the fundamentals of it are, stu are still quite strong in terms of delivering for people. We seem very reluctant to bring in lorry drivers from Poland. I'm not sure what the government's position is on turkeys. In <laughs> so long as they don't drive lorries. Maybe they. Well, well, maybe though, if the turkeys did drive themselves over, maybe that would solve the. <laughs> maybe that would solve the problem. Um, uh, Torsten Bell, uh, this is slight uh, throwing you a, um, a curveball. Explain to listeners the productivity puzzle, because the the flip side of if we just pay lorry drivers more for doing the same job. Uh, their, you know, their wages go up, the cost of delivery goes up, we end up paying more in the shops. So uh, the, the, the way that the, the, the increased wages actually works economically is if we improve productivity. Explain what productivity is uh, for us, if you can, Torsten. <laughs> and uh, the, the great, everyone for years, successive chances, have talked about trying to crack the productivity puzzle. Uh, what, what does that mean in practice? Literally everybody just turned off the radio. Um, <laughs> yeah. no, I'm not, listening, I'm we listening. Are, no, this is the whole point. This is, this is, this is, instead like of us having a conversation where we all scratch our chins and say, oh, yes, of course, productivity. This right, is the point okay. that people want to know what the hell uh, politicians are talking about. Okay, so the, the way to relate this to the, um, the question we're all focused on here, which is, again, what's happening to people's wages, is in the end, the long-term driver of our wages as a nation is how good we are at producing stuff or, or producing services for each hour of work that is done in the economy. That's the big underlying long-term trend. Different people, obviously, who gets which bit of that pie is obviously up for lots of rows. A big picture for the country as a whole, how much we produce for each bit of work is, in the end, the long-term driver of rising wages for our society. Now, the productivity puzzle, which you often hear talked about, is really two different puzzles that we've split up. The first is Britain has low levels of productivity, and has had lower levels of productivity the most comparative countries think france think germany think the united states for quite some time having you know in the 19th century been by far the most productive economy in the world and trying to think through why we are less productive than otherwise similar countries has been a kind of key feature of what policymakers and economists want to do now those people were still confused before the second productivity puzzle turned up which is why, after the financial crisis, did the whole world see a slowdown in productivity growth? So this is a rate of change, not about the productivity level. But in Britain, so everyone saw a slowdown in productivity growth, and Britain was the winner in having the biggest slowdown in productivity growth, by which I mean the fact that we basically had no productivity growth in the decade after the financial crisis, running up to the beginning of the pandemic. And that is underpinning it the most important, it's not the only reason, but it's the most important reason why wages didn't rise 
very fast in Britain during the past decade because we weren't able to deliver productivity growth. We didn't get better at producing things. And that is underline that. That's to do with lots of different factors to the, about the way our economy works. But it is really important. And although we want to say, oh, look, there's kind of you know, macroeconomic rows about data and then there's the real world, I'd be, I would push back against that. The reason why real people haven't been getting wage growth for the last decade is because we haven't done a good enough job about raising our productivity and that is a very real world problem it's not a kind of abstract problem for you know charts and people in Westminster to discuss. Uh, Polly we quite often talk about you know the fear of automation or you know your job won't exist in the future but that that's part of solving the productivity puzzle to some extent isn't it that jobs change more high skilled jobs overseeing the robots or whatever doing the jobs that used to be done by loads of people on low wages that's what embracing that is part of what tackling productivity puzzles all about Uh, potentially yeah automation has an important role to play here and uh, I've heard conservatives talking about that in relation to both increases in the minimum wage that they uh, encourage or potentially force employers to think about actually can a robot do this cheaper because you've pushed up the cost of labor and that so long as they can access investment enables them to essentially get more productivity and it that that doesn't necessarily just destroy jobs because if you can create productivity and you can create wealth, you know, the jobs will emerge somewhere else in the system. But it's interesting that we've seen here uh, lots of people kind of then talking about shortages also as a, as a driver of um, that, that automation. And it's going to be a glorious, wonderful thing. And if you contrast uh, the Labour Party, Keir Starmer was talking about a very tech utopian speech, actually, again, talking about, uh, automation and all these amazing things that technology will bring Robots us. Robots and exoskeletons. Yeah, exactly. And actually, so what's nobody is then talking about the transitional costs um, of people who might lose the job. And sure, another job might be created somewhere else in the economy. But getting that person physically to that job, which might be somewhere different, is challenging. Um, or training them up for the new jobs that may emerge, also challenging. Requires different kinds of investment uh, different, uh, different kinds of kind of government intervention, and and if you don't get those transitional moves right, you end up with, for example, what happened when we closed down coal mining is you see extraordinary kind of scarring effects on those areas which have lost um, uh, lost their their kind of one kind of job, and you know they didn't just move to London and work in the financial services sector; they stayed where they were, and you know the, the political anger of that is part of what has led us to Brexit and to the levelling up agenda and everything that's driving politics today. So it it just seems interesting to me that whilst absolutely automation uh, has a role to play in driving productivity, if there are consequences for jobs or even, as some people fear, you know, the number of jobs available in the economy starts to actually reduce, um, the, co- the political consequences of that... I think are, are often underestimated and, and the role that government's going to need to take in helping people to adapt to a new kind of economy. Um, Matt, the, this is a conservative government, but economically it's all over the place, isn't it? So on the one hand, you've got this idea, we'll let the market you know, drive up wages and then, that, then it'll all be fine, says Boris Johnson. While he's also putting up taxes uh, to the... To the um, uh, disappointment of uh, people like you and, uh, and Conservative MPs on the right. What is your take on Boris Johnson? Do you think he 
Do you think he even understands the economics? <laughs> I mean, I don't think he's, he's an economist. He's a politician. And ultimately, he, he's doing what he thinks is um, muddling through and, and popular at any given time. I remember back uh, when he was running for Tory leader, he was the, the free market champion, um, talking about the, the power of markets and how that, that would be what he'd, he'd focus on. And then come the election time, he's, he's very focused on his messaging. And now I just, I, I don't know, I think it's all a little bit confused. I don't think they have a clear vision. And I, get, I feel that a lot around party conference, it's a much smaller conference this year, that the main hall much smaller and um, the, the, the party faithful of are coming in much reduced numbers there's not as much excitement about the Tories you would think of it you know this would be a great time way ahead in the polls you've got this huge majority but they're not doing anything great with it um, one one issue that comes to mind just tying back into our questions about productivity is, is housing I mean a key, key reason why people aren't as necessarily productive as they could be because they can't live close to the best-paying jobs. Uh, or if they, they do choose to move, they, they lose a large chunk of their salary paying excessive housing costs. So we're not building enough houses. Um, Boris, and um, particularly under Jenrick, said that we're going to make this a big focus. If we want the Tory party to exist in future, we need a property-owning democracy. Um, we think there's, it's absolutely essential to build more homes. And now it seems all wishy-washy from the government in terms of where they're going next on that policy. They, they're kind of giving up what was perhaps one of their, their most ambitious, yes, it's, it causes um, issues uh, amongst some Tory MPs, but necessary economic reforms. And if they're not going to do those economic reforms, they're not going to kind of boost the productivity. They're not going to have a good narrative to go back to at the next election. So I think it can be very short-termist with their economic thinking rather than thinking about how can we... I mean, I think we're, we're facing um, a massive supply-side issues here. And you've got inflation coming out of that. How do you get out of that? Well, you need supply-side economic reforms. You, you can't just spend your money to Im improve, induce um, productivity improvements. You can to some extent with infrastructure, but you, you need to do that economic reform but there's no there's, or there's very little talk about that at, at Tory party conference at the same time so it just it just feels kind of very short termist rather than that kind of what can we do to, to boost our living standards in, in the longer run that's all we've got time for on this episode of the red box podcast don't forget you can listen to me live monday to friday 10 till 1 on times radio and we bring you the best bits here on the podcast and if you're feeling particularly nice why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from this episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.